0: Alright, good morning. Hello, my name is Matt. Hi Matt, very good. Why don't you guys all say your name? It's very nice to meet you. Uh, I would love for you uh, to open up in your own Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. If you need a Bible, there should be a Bible in a seat rack in front of you. Uh, We've just been walking through these introductory vert- chapters in the New Testament to turn the corner from uh, where, where God begins to make, uh, make good on his promises to save his people. And so we've been looking at that. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 1, I just want to say a big thank you to those of you who helped with our Christmas party last Sunday. It was a real blessing. A special thanks to Bonnie Moore and uh, Lisa Weber, Karen Hill, Randy Popsichel, Mike Davis, uh, Gary and Megan were super helpful as well. And so I'm thankful for just a team of people. Uh, to serve, uh, I think it was the great Bill Parcells uh, that talk about how players play the game, uh, but it's a team that wins championships. And so I just love the picture of you know as a church we're a family we're a team and that's how we'll we'll serve and be faithful and win together. So it's great to have you on my team. <laughs> uh, next up uh, in the life of our church is next Sunday. Those of you who just didn't get the memo. There's a there's an invitation card in your bulletin for next. Sunday. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve, if you didn't know. Uh, And just so, some people ask, what are we doing for Christmas Eve? So we have two separate services, two different services. The one in the morning at our normal time will be very celebratory. Uh, We're going to get loud for Jesus. And then, uh, but we'll come back Sunday night for Christmas Eve and we'll get more reflective and contemplative. And um, we'll try to light some candles and not do what my wife did six years ago and burn her hair. Uh, it's like a pyrotechnic Christmas Eve service. We're not going to do, do that this year. Uh, but looking forward to, to time, everyone's like, man, I want to sit by her next week. Uh, I'd like to turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, so here now, uh, Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you for just even now hearing your word. Pray now that you would join us in the preaching of God's word. I pray that In your mercy, my words would help be helpful and encouraging, uh, potentially convicting, but ultimately lead to the comfort that is offered in Jesus. Pray that you would just honor this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many kids, we don't have a lot of kids left in here, but maybe those who are still left in here, could you guys tell me something that you love and you just don't care if anybody else thinks it's silly? Pokemon. Thank you. What do, what do you love that you just don't care everyone else thinks is silly? Anyone? Ice cream? Ice cream? I- Ice. Pizza? What's that? Soccer? Lego. Legos? Now, how about the older people? What are stuff that you thought was just amazing and you just didn't care what anybody thought when you were growing up? Barbie. Barbies? Lego. Legos? Legos? My little pony, good for you. Um, (laughs) You know, a couple couple Thursdays ago, I showed up for basketball with some of the guys I play with, and I was sporting like my 15, 16-year-old Cyclones shirt, and uh, one of the guys I was playing with said, how do you feel wearing that after the Iowa women just obliterated the Cyclone gals, you know? And I'm kind of like, you know, she's my alma mater, like a loyal, loyal Cubs fan used to losing, I stand by my team in victory and defeat. Uh, be, let's be truthful, though. There's some things that we keep in private, you know. Um, for instance, there are many, many women here that when you get that invitation to a Tupperware party, you're like, ee, yes, I'll be happy to be there, right? And then there's some men in the room. Um, And if you were honest, like you would never admit this when you're watching with your Monday night football fans, uh, but you really like those bath bombs, and you take baths, and you love the smell of lavender and steam in the air. Uh, You would never, ever, ever admit that publicly, but we know you exist. Now, here's the thing. If I could say what's the aim of today's sermon is to put in our hearts particularly those who have known Jesus, love Jesus, is that you would go public for Jesus. Right? That there would be a, a joy and a necessity to go public. Um, you know, I, I know that many of you are like, sure, if push came to shove, someone puts you in the corner like, do you believe in Jesus? You'd be like, uh, yeah. Uh, but what would it look like in your public life, your behavior, your speech, that actually made it unnecessary for someone to even ask you the question. Um, let, let, let me just give you a little bit of the context of our book. Because you kind of have a... Anytime you read through the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, all, you actually have kind of a double context. What I mean by that is you have the original recipients of, the, of this uh, uh, record of Jesus' life, what, what were probably Jewish Christians somewhere in the 60s AD. And so you're, you're the original readers of this, they're getting from one of the disciples of Jesus, Matthew, a record of Jesus's life, potentially Matthew writing right before he's going to pass away. But he's also writing it at a pretty unique time in the history of the Christian church. For a while, Christians kind of co-mingled with the Jews but, it, but over time, Christians become public enemy number one even among Jews and the Greco-Romans. And that what that means is it's, it's very hard to, to stay a public Christian. You're going to get persecuted. You actually have a, a, a contemporary book, the book of Hebrews, which is, in a similar vein, warning people, if you leave Jesus Christ and you go back to Judaism, you, leave, you lose everything. Because Jesus is greater than Moses and he's greater than the angels and he's greater than the old covenant. He's greater than the sacrifices. Stay with Jesus. And so in many ways, you have Matthew writing to this story to people who are going to have to make a decision. Are they going to stick with Jesus? Are they going to be remain public Christians? Or are they going to hide in private? But then you have the original context of the story, and that's Joseph. So just a quick review of what, what, what I just read to you is you have Joseph, who's a decent guy. But, but by the end of chapter 1, he's moved from a decent guy to a devoted public disciple. How do we know he's a decent guy? We know he's a decent guy because he has pledged to be married to a young woman named Mary. And back then, that pledging period, that betrothal period, that engagement period, it was almost as, as solid and valid as a marriage. Uh, they, they weren't in the same home. They haven't consummated the marriage. But for all intents and purposes, they are one. And then the rumor mill comes that Mary, who's been off with her uh, cousin, Elizabeth, has come back, and she's pregnant with child. And Joseph knows it's not his. Now, if he's a, a young man with a young business, some sort of carpentry business, maybe a, a member of the synagogue... Um, this is not good for business. This is not good for your public image. And so at this point, to kind of guard his public image, to give him a a safe place in the synagogue and an upstanding position in the, the marketplace to keep doing business, probably the best thing for him to do is get loud that this is not his child. But he's a decent guy. And he doesn't do that. He actually intends to say you know what I don't know what has happened I don't know why this woman I loved has has betrayed me but I'm not going to I'm not going to throw her under the bus uh, if if Rome wasn't in power he could have actually accused her of adultery and probably got her stoned but at this time in the first century Jews weren't able to fulfill all the uh, kind of the rules of the law but he's just going to go you know break it off talk to her dad hey we're done here let's this is, And then something happens, right? An angel of the Lord appears in a dream and is saying, hey, what's going on in Mary's is a thing of God. And I need you to trust me. And I need you to take her home. And by the end of the chapter, he's willing to expose himself to public shame by trusting the word of God and taking home this woman. And that's what he does. You know, what does it take for a decent guy to go from a dis- devoted disciple? And so my main idea for us this morning is this. Because Jesus Christ addresses humanity's nastiest problem, public loyalty to him is worth whatever it might cost. Would you hear that? Because Jesus Christ addresses humanity's nastiest problem, public loyalty to him is worth whatever it might cost so three points or three sections we're going to talk about humanity 's nastiest problem, second, god's planned remedy, third, going public for Jesus. so we're going to zoom in on humanity 's nastiest problem uh, we We get it a, a taste of it in verse twenty one right. The, the the angel, of this dream is trying to explain to Joseph why he needs to to lean in and obey, and he's talking about because God is at work here, and this woman, your betrothed bride, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, depending on your upbringing, that the term sinner sins is super common. You're like, man, that's all that mom ever talked about, you know. And yet, that that's kind of the crux of this of this section. Like, we have to understand why someone coming to save humanity from their sins is a big deal. Uh, the term uh, sin itself, the, the, the Greek word is just a word that's like, that means kind of like missing the mark, right? So if you think about a bullseye, right? The, the God's word, God's commands are, you know, the, the center of the bullseye and that God wants his people to always walk on the mark, Right. But, it, 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 but the profundity of that is is, is deep with that it's like to always do what's most honest most pure uh the mark of scripture is perfect beauty perfect order and so the idea of someone who has sins is someone who has missed the mark and, and if you're an american you're like but i'm a decent guy right i mean maybe i didn't hit the center but i'm on the board I mean, I'm horrific at darts. So if I hit anywhere inside the dartboard, I feel pretty good. You could actually, if you want to, come to my basement where we have a dartboard. And you can see that most of us miss the dartboard a lot because we have wood paneling in our fancy basement. And it's, it's like around the dartboard. It's like, man, these guys are horrible. <laughs> right? But the, the biblical idea of, of obedience and honoring God is hitting the center every time. Not just on the board, but the center. Uh, throughout scripture you 'll see the idea of sin means to to cross the line to go over the standard that God has set. Um, the word sin or sin speaks to moral evil, so that would obviously be things of lying and stealing, but also things like pride and greed and envy and jealousy and hatred another way to think about uh sin is it's sometimes described as almost like a deadly disease Uh, or 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 more like a deadly addictive disease so that what when we fail on monday it's so much easier to fail on tuesday because the disease of sin will grow and and this is this is what's going on in all of our hearts and so when uh The angel of the Lord is trying to convince Joseph, lean in here, stay in here, stick with this woman. He says, because what is going on in her womb is going to save people from their sins. That's enough to push Joseph like, whoa, I need that. If you you just want to jump back in your Bibles, I'm going to go back to about halfway into the Bible as a prophet named Isaiah. And I'm going to read Isaiah 59, uh, just the opening eight verses. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 8, kind of depict a little bit of what sin is and how it shows up in different ways. Uh, It's kind of making a diagnosis of the human condition. Uh, Isaiah 59, 1 begins with, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. But now I start talking about humanity. This is humanity's condition. This is the diagnosis given by a prophet of the Lord. Uh, But your iniquities have separated you from God, from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And one is broken and an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So, One of the things that, for me, when I read Scripture, is Scripture is like an x-ray to the soul. And so, when it exposes, probably things in me slightly different than you, but it exposes and shows me that I'm like this. Um, In my posturing, I I believe, uh, in my posturing, I, I try to think of myself in my best moments. Right? But what, the, the, what God's Word does, it exposes we're not always our best moments. So the things that we think in the dark, the things that we feel when things don't go well, it's, it's exposing that humanity's nastiest problem is sin. There's a woman back in the, uh, a number of years ago named uh, Audrey Humbidge, uh, and um, she, interesting, she died uh, pretty sadly of complications related to cancer treatment. Uh, So Audrey wanted to get well. She subjected herself to the doctor's uh, prognosis and recovery plan. And in the long run, she died because of the cancer treatments. Uh, But sadly for her children, Chris, Martin, and Angela, when they did an autopsy, they found out she actually didn't have cancer. And this is the key. This is why it's so important. We have to accurately diagnose what is humanity's nastiest problem. If we treat problems with the wrong solution, we maybe persist in the disease or the illness or the judgment and never get to the heart, right? Because if our problem was education, our Savior could have been an educator. If our problem was psychological, God could have sent a therapist. If our problem was medical, uh, we would have been sufficient to have a doctor. But our problem was sin, and so we needed a Savior. Humanity's nastiest problem is sin. This is, let's talk about God's planned remedy. God's remedy is to send Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 18 it says, here's the record. Here's the, here's the story of God's Messiah coming to the world. We'll actually come back to Isaiah 59 in a bit. But there's a, just, just look at the titles given for God's remedy in these short verses. He's called the Messiah or the Christ. Uh, He's given the name Jesus, which is uh, the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Savior. And, And then there's this mention of this Hebrew term, Emmanuel. El means God, Emmanuel, God with you, the with us God. And so the remedy for humanity's sin is God himself... The anointed promised king who is a savior, the savior of the world. This is God's remedy. We need him. Now, this is probably, it's good to think about, um, some people push back just in general, like on things miraculous. Like, I don't believe there are miracles at all let alone a miracle of this epic proportions, that God kind of does a miraculous conception in the womb of a baby, or that there's even a God who exists. Just a couple of thoughts uh, that may help you when, you, if someone is really pushing back on miracles, or your own struggle with miracles. Just a few thoughts. Um, first of all, we're all probably aware that uh, in our culture there are what you would call thoroughgoing materialists. Uh, such people would say that they believe that the, in nature and that, Nature is all that there is or ever will be. So sometimes they're called materialist, naturalists. Uh, the, the thoroughgoing idea right now is that the world came about through a cosmic bang. And then the universe has traveled since then in, in one part mechanical, or, and then at another level, kind of one part biological journey ever since. Uh, therefore, there's nothing Supernatural. Uh, nothing remotely like a miracle could ever occur because there's not something outside of nature to kind of come in and play with it. You guys ever heard this argument? All right. Well, here's a couple of reasons why I think this position in the long run is untenable. So you've got to put on your thinking caps for a bit. All right. First, one of the key things I want you to realize is people making this argument are using something called Reason. They're using a rational, reasonable mind. Uh, But for reason to exist, it has to actually exist outside of what is natural to look in on it. They have to be able to evaluate it. Otherwise, what reason itself is in this natural thing. So how could what is in the thing evaluate the thing? So reason gives meaning. Reason gives shape. And it gives understanding to physical phenomena. It's, a, it's actually a beautiful thing. In fact, wherever Christianity has impacted the world, science and reason has, have exploded because Christians love to look at the physical world that God has created. But since reason gives meaning, shape, and understanding to physical ph- phenomenon, you need it to be outside of nature. Because if reason itself is the result of random chance... In biological evolution, why would we ever be certain that these reasonable ideas are actually reasonable? Are you guys tracking with me? Right? So, in fact, and this is one of the interesting ideas, is if we actually believe in just pure evolution, pure materialism, we have to admit that our ability to think and understand the world right now could be just as backward and just as wrong as the caveman who supposedly used square square, uh, square wheels. Right? We'd have to think that like where we're at in our ability to understand, it could be so backward and so wrong, we're going to laugh at it in 2,000 years. Like we laughed at cavemen who thought the stick figures was the Mona Lisa. Thus, I believe for reason to exist, it has to exist outside of nature. And if reason does exist outside of nature, we would call that supernatural. If reason exists outside of it, it is supernatural. And then what makes sense to me is if you have something outside of nature who has reason, and you have this big, huge universe, the thing outside of nature that has reason is going to be a big supernatural being who has reason and power and thought. Now, if that God exists, and I believe he does, then making a virgin woman conceive in her womb isn't that difficult. Miracles can happen because there is a supernatural God. Now, for some people, the miracle is the, maybe the hard part to overcome. But I actually think the hardest thing to overcome is the message. You're a sinner. I think the reason why we deny God is because we don't like the message that we're, we, are actually offend, we have offended him and sinned against him. And so we've got to figure out a way to deny God because we don't have to deal with that message. You need a Savior for your sins. You need... A a supernatural savior for your sins. So turn back with me to to Isaiah 59. Because it's the end of Isaiah 59 that just strikes me as yet another prophetic promise of how desperately we need God to send the remedy. I'm jumping to verse 12. Reading to verse 16. This is a prophet. He's picking up where he left off. He says, For our offenses... Verse 12, Isaiah 59 For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and opposition, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. It says, So justice is driven back, righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. By the way, that happens in every evil totalitarian government. right? Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes prey. That's just wild. It's like the Bible is true about all things. But look what happens on the second half of verse 15. The Lord looked... And was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. This is the promise of Isaiah. God looks out and he sees a world under the diagnosis of sin and death and judgment. And he also looks out and says, no one can help them. And it says, so he comes. And this is why we, do, we are so marveled at God's love that he sees the sin of the world and he comes to save sinners. He just, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm, I, I do a lot of my sermon notes by hand and if it's really junky, you know, I kind of I crumple it up and I throw it away. Like God doesn't do that. He, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He's going to achieve salvation for them. I read recently about a guy named Ivan Maguire. Maguire Excuse me, McGuire, Ivan McGuire. Ivan McGuire was a skydiver instructor. So he helped people go skydiving. He had done it over 800 times. Sometimes he would do the one where, you know, they kind of, they connect you to another person and you jump together. Sometimes he would be the outside guy filming the person coming down. Well, um... Ivan McGuire was super excited about a jump. He was going to be the film guy, and the film guy always jumps first, and the other guys come. Well, Ivan McGuire M- Maguire was so excited about a skydive jump that he jumped out of the plane without a parachute. No joke. Now, at that moment, there's only one thing that ha- helps him Superman. He did not live. This is a taste of the condition of humanity. That in our sins, the only one who can jump to save us is a superman. And that's who you're introduced to in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the one who will come and save people from our sins. Jesus, the Savior. He is the only one. And the amazing story of Christmas is he jumped down. He left the glories of heaven. He came to this earth, which isn't that nice. I love earth. It's great. But it's full of sinners and sin and despair and destruction and evil and hatred. And he came and he, he came and he said he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christmas celebrates the arrival of God's Superman. Jesus was fully God and fully man, which is why the conception happened the way that he did, that through a, a woman. Uh, The seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 had to come to save the world. But this one was not just humanity. He was also fully God. So he is God with us. As our sins accumulate, we owe God a God-sized debt. And so we needed a God-sized remedy. We needed a God-sized sacrifice. We needed a God-sized mediator. And so Jesus Christ came. Humanity's nasty problem is sin. God's planned remedy was his son. And he came. And and Joseph, I mean, he gets just a little bit of this story. And he says, okay, God, I'll take the girl. I'll bring her into my home. I will raise this son as my own. He will be in my house. But can I tell you something about Joseph that maybe you didn't realize? Going public, for Joseph to go public, he took it on the chin. Remember, the, the easy way was to go public and just make Mary look like, oh, she's this unfaithful little hussy. But he doesn't do that. He takes her, which, what, what do you think that means? Everyone in town thought what? That's Joseph's boy. In fact, if you just turn in your New Testament to John eight forty one. I won't belabor this, but in John 8, Jesus is having this mano a mano discussion with the Israelites who think that, oh, God is our father. And, and, and Jesus is like, your father's the devil. Like, you're, you're sons of iniquity. But in John chapter 8, verse 41, you get a hint of what Jesus grew up with and what Joseph dealt with in public. Because in, in John chapter 8, verse 41, Jesus is warning them that you're doing the works of your father, the devil. And then they pointed him and they say, we're not illegitimate children. Do you see what they know the story of Jesus growing up? Well, we're not illegitimate children. Uh, Some of the, the King James puts it a little more directly. We're not son, a son of immorality, of fornication. I mean, you've got to realize when Joseph grew up his son, what kind of smears and lies against both Joseph and Jesus, Joseph faced. And he knew it when he said, I'll go public. I'll take this woman and I will raise this son. And so I just want to move to kind of this last idea. What would it look like for us to go public for Jesus Christ? Remember, my main idea was this. Because Jesus Christ addresses humanity's nastiest problem, public loyalty to him is worth whatever it might cost. I don't know what it will cost us. Um, I mean, it's going to cost you something. The reason why I know it will cost you something is the Bible says so. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 Uh, The Apostle Paul gives us this instruction, as well as this warning. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13 say this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, Here's a few things you may not know or do know about the world we live in. Uh, First... One out of every seven Christians in the world today live in a country where they suffer some form of persecution. So that's somewhere around 340 million Christians live in countries where it's illegal to practice their faith. Thus, they face things like arbitrary arrest, violence, a full range of human rights violations, and even murder. Uh, Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith, with Nigeria being the most dangerous country in the world for Christians. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Now, admittedly, persecution in America is super minor (laughs) compared to saints abroad. Our persecution is a bit more subtle. Right, a few might lose their jobs for holding to Christian convictions. Uh, You might get passed over for a promotion. You might get an eye roll from your neighbor. Uh, And by the way, I don't say this so that like Christians get mad. Right? (laughs) Because one of the beautiful things throughout the New Testament is Christians should take joy when they share in the suffering and persecution of their Savior. It is a great honor. Uh, We should be joyful when persecutions come. You have been considered worthy of sharing the same honor as our Lord. You've been worthy to share the same honor of people like Joseph. Uh, In fact, I don't want us to whine about persecution. I don't don't want us to flee from it. Instead, to be ready. Because Jesus is worth it. Take it on the chin. And, And when someone says, why are you doing this? Tell them, Jesus Christ died for me. He died for my sins. He's coming for me. One day, the whole earth will be his. He is the rightful king now. Right now, he's holding out clemency for you to come to him and seek forgiveness. Yes, in due time, he's going to come and he's going to reign over all the earth. Therefore, I'm willing to suffer now to convey to you the greatness of his worth. It's worth it to go public. I think about it right now. I don't know if you knew this, uh, but I guess there's this uh, Republican primary going on right now. Did you guys notice? Um, And and what I find is amazing is people will spend millions, maybe it's up to billions of dollars now, for for advertisements on radio and television and uh, my Amazon Alexa uh, device. Every, I mean, people are spending millions. Uh, some people put up yard signs. People wear t-shirts. People are getting tattoos for their preferred presidential candidates. Uh, people are posting their thoughts on public media. That's fine. But this is what I find interesting. People are willing to go public for a fallen person who might do a little good. Is that amazing? People are willing to go public for a fallen sinful person who might do a little good. <laughs> What does it look like to go public for the Son of God who has only ever done good and offers to the, the world around us a salvation from their sin? It's time to go public. A couple thoughts on going public. I mean, one, I would, one of the ways that Christians go public is they go public through baptism. Baptism is a public declaration that I have been forgiven, set free, and forgiven, and I publicly identify with Jesus Christ. If you've never been baptized, I challenge I you, go public for Jesus. But, what you know, usually we do it in the church, and when, at least at our church, when you come up out of the waters of baptism, what do we do? We clap, we cheer. Guess what? On Monday, you might not get the same amount of celebration. So what does it look like to be a publicly baptized Christian in a non-Christian space? To offer mercy and life to speak the name of Jesus. To bring a little bit of light to a dark place. Be baptized. Hold to righteousness in your... Wherever God calls you. This year we've talked a lot about inviting people to great things. Right, we're inviting people to transformative places. We're inviting people to our table. We want to invite people to our Bible studies, to our, to our church, to our Christ. So yes, invite people to transformative places. But let me encourage you then, enter in to unredeemed spaces. This is where you enter into schools, into nonprofits, into neighborhoods, into your workplace. Enter in and bring a little light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, you'll take it on the chin, but it'll be so be worth it. Um, to close, I'll just share one of, one of the heroes of my faith in history. Last week, I shared a hero of my faith in personal history. Uh, some of you may know the name this name, but his name is William Wilberforce. Uh, many of you know his story, but if you don't, uh, just be aware that he spent 40 years trying to bring down slavery in the British Empire. Now, things could have gone much differently. For starters, uh, William could have gone the way of other wealthy men of means. But God actually grabbed his heart. And William became a Christian. Interesting, at the time of his conversion, he was already this pretty young guy as a member of parliament. And coming to Jesus, he wondered if he should leave parliament and become a minister, a pastor. But he had a local pastor. A guy named John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, and he wrote to, to William, because William wrote, should I leave? Should I become a minister? What should I do here? And John Newton wrote back, it is hoped and believe that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. Right? Stay there. Stay in public. By the way, this is one of the things I think is really interesting. He was mocked for being a Christian all the years he was in Parliament. He really was. But I can guarantee you that if you were to ask someone who was a member of Parliament from 1780 to 1820, even in Britain, about the only name they will remember today is William Wilberforce. The laughingstock of Parliament is the one that even Britain still remembers. He stays in the public eye. He commits to do what he can for Jesus there. Now later on in his deathbed, uh, there was another famous pastor named John Wesley And he wrote to Wilberforce encouraging him to press on in public service. I want you to hear the letter that Pastor John Wesley wrote to Member of Parliament William Wilberforce on February 24, 1791. Wesley wrote, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. That he, God, who has guided you from youth up, may continue to strengthen you in this. And in all things, Is the prayer of dear sir, your affectionate servant. John Wesley. There would be several more decades before William Wilberforce would see the end of the slave trade in Britain. In fact, it wasn't many days before he, it was totally outlawed, and then he took his last breath. So like those two pastors of old, I stand before you this morning. I encourage you, press on in the places that God has called you. Be willing to go public for Jesus and do the world some good. In Jesus' name. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the truth of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Savior of our sins. If there's anyone who has not come to Christ for that forgiveness, to get the sweet remedy for a sin-stained soul, I pray that this would be the day of their salvation, and they would come and say, I believe in Jesus the Christ. For those in this room who have Christ as Savior, we pray that like Joseph and those who would follow him, that we'd be willing to go public no matter the cost. For the Christ is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.